0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 12. If you've been with us the last several months, then you know we've been making our way through a series on the book of Acts. The hope that we have as we make our way through the book of Acts is that we would grow in dependence on the Holy Spirit, that we grow in our desire to pray, and that we grow in our desire to reach the lost people. And certainly I think the passage today will point us in all those directions. So to that end, let me pray, and then we'll get started here. Father, we thank you for this journey we're taking through the book of Acts and we do pray that as a church, we would grow in our trust of who you are, that we would long to pray frequently and regularly and constantly, knowing that you are a good God. We pray that we grow in our dependence on the Holy Spirit, and we pray that we would grow in our desire to reach lost people with the good news of Jesus. But Father, for any of this to happen, it will be because you are at work Even as we're reminded in our passage today, prayer is the engine that makes the church go. And so we pray this morning, not just because this is what we do, we pray, but because we know we desperately need your help. God, I know that some are coming in here this morning weary. They are tired. Just exhausted of life in a broken world. And in the midst of that, we pray that you would encourage Probably we know that others are, are coming in angry or bitter, feeling frustrated, and we pray that you would remind them this morning of your kind character. And others are maybe just confused, and we pray that you would encourage them again with your words. So, Lord, wherever we are, whatever baggage we bring in this morning, whatever trials we may be going through, we pray that you administer to us in a powerful way. We are pausing here because we need your help, and so we're asking that your spirit would be at work For our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. I'll be the first to admit that not every children's Sunday school song is filled with great and deep theology. For example, I remember singing a song in my early Sunday school years that was entitled, I Am a Promise. The lyrics of the song went like this. I'm a promise. I'm a possibility. I'm a promise with a capital P. I'm a great big bundle of potentiality. I do have some questions, if that's even a word, by the way. The song goes on, I'm learning to hear God's voice. I'm trying to make the right choices. I'm a promise to be anything He wants me to be. Now, to be charitable, I don't doubt that the songwriters had good intentions in writing that song. And I'm also willing to concede that there might be snippets of that song that could be loosely connected to biblical truth. And it's also possible that I'm just dense and I'm missing what they're trying to say. But those stipulations aside, I have to be honest in saying, I have no idea what that song actually means. What does it mean that I am a promise? And more specifically, what does it mean that I am a promise to be anything he wants me to be? Those lyrics may sound nice, and to be fair, the song is pretty catchy. But honestly, I don't know what biblical truth we're trying to communicate there. And what's even more concerning, I think you could make the argument that there's a not-so-subtle emphasis in that song on morality that's totally disconnected from the work of Christ. At least at face value, from my perspective, it seems the song is more about maximizing your potential through effort than it is about anything connected to the good news of Jesus. So all that to say, I'm completely aware of the fact that not every children's Sunday school song is filled with great and deep theology. But having acknowledged that, I'm also going to make an argument this morning that there's something about children's Sunday school songs that is incredibly valuable, even for us as adults, maybe especially for us as adults. More specifically, I think there's a simplicity to children's Sunday school songs that we desperately need. We have a tendency to overcomplicate things and in the process lose sight of really obvious things. And because of that tendency, we need to be reminded of simple truths that form the background of our Christian faith. For example, we need to be reminded that Jesus loves us, this we know, because the Bible tells us so. Sure, we can sing about that truth in much more profound ways with greater theological depth, and we probably should do so on a regular basis, but sometimes we just need to be reminded that Jesus does love us. To that end, there's something about simple songs I think is helpful. It helps us to remind ourselves of truths about God that we might forget. And that's why I appreciate the children's song, My God is So Big. Now, I should tell you, if you're not familiar with this song, the song has some pretty cool hand motions, which I will not be doing today. And if you speed up the song really fast or you slow it down a lot, it's pretty fun too. But I appreciate the simplicity of the lyrics. It goes like this, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the rivers are his, the stars are his handiwork too. Bloop, bloop, bloop. That's the fun part of the song too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Now listen, I understand my God is so big is never going to make it to the top of the billboard charts. I get that. I also understand that that there is a certain theological depth and richness that might be missing in that song. But you know what? Sometimes we just need to be reminded of the simple truth. In this case, our God is big and mighty, and there's nothing he cannot do. And actually, I think the great value of our passage today is it reminds us of that same simple truth. We serve a God who is great and mighty and who can do things far beyond our imagination. And truth be known, I think we forget that sometimes, or at the very least, we lose sight of it. Which is why a children's Sunday school song like, My God is so big, can be helpful. And it's why a passage like the one that we're looking at today is so valuable also. Because it helps us to remember a simple truth we often forget. Our God is big and mighty, and He does great things. There's no one like Him. So that said, let's stand here. Acts 12, 1-19, I think it'll become quickly apparent that we serve a big God as we read this passage Standing is just a simple way we can show our reverence for the words, for the Word of God. The words will be on the screen here shortly, hopefully. If not, you can listen along as I read or look along in your own Bibles. Acts twelve one to nineteen says this, beginning in verse one. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And we'd seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, "'You're out of your mind.' But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, "'It's his angel.' But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to him with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, "'Tell these things to James and to the brothers.' Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter." And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now to be sure, there is a lot happening in Acts 12, 19 Some of it's sobering. There's persecution, even death. Some of it's mysterious. Why does one thing happen to James and another thing to Peter? And some of it's just entertaining. There's a humorous scene at the door in the middle of the night in an interaction with an angel that's kind of humorous too. But the main point of the passage is exceedingly clear. God miraculously rescues Peter from prison. And in doing so, God demonstrates his unmatched power and might. There is no one like him. And indeed, that's the main theme that I want to drive home this morning, that our God is big and he does great and mighty things. And furthermore, I'm going to contend this morning that because he is a big God who does great and mighty things, we should live differently. But before we get there to how we should live, I think it's important for us to slow down and see the mighty work of God in this passage. Because the more you study the passage, the more you realize how great and powerful our God is. So the plan this morning is to work our way through the text. I think there are four different scenes. There's the setup in verses 1 to 5, the mysterious escape, or excuse me, the miraculous escape in verses 6 to 11, the interaction with the church in verses 12 to 17, and then the aftermath in verses 18 to 19. What I want to do is just make our way through those four sections of the text, and then we'll circle back around and consider how might we live in light of what we read here. So that said, let's start with the first scene, which is the setup we find in verses 1 to 5. Now in verse 1 of chapter 12, the tone shifts from what we read in chapter 11. We ended chapter 11 by looking at the church at Antioch. We saw that they were giving generously, and that the Lord was increasing their number regularly. They were thriving. But now in chapter 12, at the very beginning here, we get an update on what's happening back in Jerusalem. This is happening roughly at the same time. In fact, we're probably going back chronologically a little bit here. The feel is, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem. That's what we're doing. We're reporting on what's happening in Jerusalem. And what we discover is that while the church in Antioch was thriving, the church in Jerusalem was facing some pretty serious difficulty. And when I say some pretty serious difficulty, I mean really serious. In fact, look again at verses 1 to 5 here. "'About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread.'" And we would seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now the Herod that's referenced here in verse 1 is Herod Agrippa I, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Agrippa I had grown up in Rome, and in the process he made many powerful friends and allies, Because of his powerful friends and allies, childhood friends, some who would grow up to become emperors, he was granted the right to rule over Judea, Samaria, Galilee, the Transjordan, and even the Decapolis. This was a largely Jewish section of the Roman Empire, and Herod worked hard to earn the favor of his Jewish subjects. And out of a desire to maintain that favor, he begins to lay violent hands on the church. As you would expect, and as we've seen in the book of Acts, there are many Jewish people who were not happy that the church was thriving. And so in a desire to earn their favor, Herod has James, the son of Zebedee and the brother of John, killed. We're told that he's killed with the sword, which is probably a reference to beheading. And seeing that this pleased his Jewish subjects, Herod then proceeded to have Peter arrested also. Now because it was during the days of unleavened bread and part of the extended Passover celebration, Peter's execution was delayed. As an execution during the Passover is generally thought to be offensive to the Jewish people. But nevertheless, it seems very obvious in this passage that Peter is headed towards his execution as well. And given the wording of this passage, it's clear Herod was going to great lengths to ensure that Peter would face his execution. In verse 4, we're told that four squads of soldiers were assigned to guard Peter. A squad consisted of four soldiers, and given what we read in verse 6, it seems that probably two soldiers were chained to Peter, one to each of his arms, and two more were standing guard. They would rotate the squads out every three hours to make sure the guards stayed fresh and alert. So in total, in total there were 16 highly trained soldiers assigned to guard Peter. So obviously Herod's plan was to keep Peter under tight guard until the Passover is completed and then bring him out to face judgment and execution. So it's fair to say that by the time we get to verse 5, things are not looking good for Peter. One of the most powerful men in the ancient world is using all of his political power and his political might to bind and humiliate Peter in prison. And more than that, he is planning to have him killed, perhaps even by beheading, just like James was. Meanwhile, Peter's friends and fellow church members have no political power and they have no political means, and thus they are left merely to pray and ask God to intervene. The situation on the outside looking in seems hopeless then. Herod has made up his mind that Peter must die, and it's not as if Peter has a legitimate chance to escape. Peter is being guarded by a rotating cast of 16 soldiers who are not only highly trained, but also highly motivated to keep an eye on Peter. After all, as was the custom under Roman law, if Peter escaped, the prison guards would have to pay his penalty, which in this case means death. So in the setup, things are not looking good for Peter. I mean, sure, the church is praying for him, but what good does prayer do when you're under the thumb of a powerful tyrant and you're being guarded by 16 highly trained and motivated soldiers? Well, as it turns out, in this case, Prayer actually does quite a bit of good. And that brings us to the second scene in the passage, which is the miraculous escape. Now, I'm guessing you've probably seen a movie or a television show before in which a prisoner breaks out of prison or a captive escapes their capture and does so through either sheer brute force or amazing ingenuity. Think MacGyver or Jack Bauer, or think Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Chewbacca rescuing Princess Leia from the captivity on the Death Star. By the way, if you think I had to ask Jim for that Star Wars reference, you would be correct. I did. (laughs) Nevertheless, the point is, most of us can think of an amazing break from captivity, but almost always involves the captor or another person doing something amazing, either with sheer force or with their own ingenuity. But let's be clear, that's not what happens here in Acts 12. Peter does not escape because another person sets him free using their strength or their creativity. Nor does he escape most certainly because of his own strength or ingenuity. Instead, Peter's escape is, in, is due entirely and solely to the supernatural work of God. And Luke, the author of Acts, goes out of his way to make this very clear in verses 6 to 11. Look first at the language in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says this, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. So in verse 6, Peter is asleep, chained between two guards. Now the fact that he's sleeping on the eve of his execution is commendable. That reality probably communicates something to us about Peter's trust in God. Nevertheless, the point is, he's sleeping. He's not staying up trying to hatch an escape plan. He's not waiting thinking, someone's going to come rescue me. He is fast asleep. In fact, he's so fast asleep that the angel has to strike him on the side to get him to wake up. The Greek word that's used here for struck actually indicates that the angel had to hit him pretty hard. This is not your mom gently waking you up on your birthday saying, time to get up, sweetie. No, this is an angel of the Lord hitting him on the side with some force and saying, get up, let's go. The angel is clearly initiating while Peter is doing nothing but sleeping. And the angel's initiating activity continues through the next several verses, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So in both verses 8 and 9, the angel is giving commands. Dress yourself. Put on your sandals. Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. And Peter is simply following orders. Again, you get the sense here that Peter is contributing nothing to his escape. He's simply along for the ride. In fact, he doesn't even know if it's real. He thinks it's just a vision. And that theme of Peter just being along for the ride continues to the rest of the scene, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, When they would passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now the language of verse 10 is incredible. It's not just that Luke casually mentions that Peter walks by two trained guards as if that's no big deal. But Luke also then goes on to inform us that the iron gate opened on his own accord for Peter, as if the gate had a mind of its own. And it's at this point in the narrative that we should be very clear about something. Peter is doing nothing. He's not even opening the gate. The gate is opening on its own accord. Throughout verses 6-11, to Peter is groggy, sleepy, confused, Lacking comprehension, his escape is solely due to the work of God. Peter is not the first century version of MacGyver. Now, by the way, I know in that reference I'm dating myself big time. So for those of you who are younger, let me just say this. MacGyver is a guy who used his ingenuity to get out of crazy situations. That's all you need to know. And the point is, that's not Peter. He's simply a sleepy dude that God rescues by his might and power. But rescue him, he does. And after Peter escaped, he makes his way to find the brothers and sisters in the church, which brings us to the third scene, Peter's interaction with the church. Find this in verses 12 to 17. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So when Peter finally comes to his senses and realizes he's been miraculously rescued from prison, he heads out to find the church. More specifically, he heads to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where the church is gathered and praying. What follows almost seems like a scene from a comedy movie. Peter knocks on the door of the outer courtyard. And when the servant girl Rhoda hears Peter's voice, in her joy, she doesn't even open the door. Instead, she runs inside to tell everyone, Peter's here. And then despite the fact they're praying for Peter, none of them believe her. Instead, they insist, you're crazy, Rhoda. And as she keeps persisting, they say, well, maybe it's his angel. Now, this reference to an angel is kind of strange. Some think, are, are they believing that there's a guardian angel of Peter? I don't think that's the case. There's no biblical reason to suppose that's what's happening here. It's more likely that they thought that perhaps Peter had died and his spirit had come back. Whatever the case is, the point is they did not believe her. And so you have this comical scene where Peter's knocking at the door A servant girl named Rhoda hears his voice, but she gets so excited she doesn't open the door. And then the church won't believe Rhoda that Peter is there. And all the while, Peter keeps knocking at the door. Guys, let me in. Let me in. When they finally open the door, they recognize it's Peter, and they get so excited that Peter has to calm them down and tell them to be quiet, which makes sense given the context, right? He was just in prison and likely to be executed. The last thing he wants is to draw attention to his whereabouts, and so he tells them, be quiet. And then he tells them how the Lord rescued him from prison, and then tells the church to inform James and the other brothers. Now, for the record, this is not the same James that died back in verse 2. That would be awkward. No, this is a different James. This is the James of verse. the James of verse 2 was the son of Zebedee, as I mentioned, the brother of John, one of the original 12. This James in verse 17 is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would eventually go on to become one of the most prominent leaders in the early church in Jerusalem, if not the most prominent leader. Nevertheless, after instructing the church to tell James and the brothers, Peter then heads out of Jerusalem to an unknown unknown location. And from this point forward in the book of Acts, we'll read very little about Peter. Meanwhile, though, back at the prison, things are not going well, which brings us to the final section of the passage, the aftermath, verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he, I think that's Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now to say that there was no little disturbance at the prison was likely a great understatement. If you're in charge of guarding a guy and your life is on the line if he disappears, and then in the middle of the night he just vanishes into thin air, that's going to be a pretty big deal. And indeed it was. Because Herod, being the wicked man he was and given the Roman custom, puts the guards to death. Again, this was the Roman law at the time, that if someone escaped, then you would pay the penalty that was due to them. And in this case, that means that these guards die. The fact that they do reminds us of Herod's immense power and his cutthroat nature. And so at the end of the passage, you have the apostle who is scheduled to die roaming freely, while Herod punishes those he thinks are at fault. Little does he know that the guards had nothing to do with Peter's escape. Because again, without question, Peter's escape is solely and completely due to the work of God. And again, that's the point of the passage. That God rescues Peter, and in doing so, we are reminded that we serve a big God who can do great and mighty things. We serve a God who can rescue a lowly fisherman from a tightly guarded prison. We serve a God who can make the power of a tyrant seem powerless. We serve a God who can do the impossible. And the challenge for us this morning is because we're so familiar with stories like this, we begin to overlook obviously simple truths like we serve a God who can do the impossible. This week I was reading an article from a pastor in the UK. The pastor was telling a story about how he had some construction guys over at his house working on a project. Somehow they found out that he's a pastor, and so over the course of a morning tea, one of the construction guys asked him, well, what are, you, what are you teaching on there? Because apparently he was, he was going to teach that morning, and so they asked, well, what are you going to teach on? And so the pastor simply shared the story with this man that he was going to preach on that Sunday, which happened to be from Luke 7, in which Jesus tells the dead man to get up, and then the man gets up. Now, the construction guy to hear the pastor tell his story had never heard a story like that in his life. And so he responded with wide eyes and complete surprise to the point that he just blurted out an expletive. He could not believe this. That Jesus would raise a guy from the dead was truly shocking to him. And if you think about it, if you've never encountered the power of God or never understood how great Jesus is, that story is shocking, isn't it? Jesus tells the dead guy to get up, and he does. Now, we're so familiar with the story that we don't even stop to think about how incredible that is. But for this construction guy, it blew his mind. Now listen, there's something good about us expecting God or expecting Jesus to do something amazing. There's something good about us expecting Jesus to raise someone from the dead. There's something right about us understanding that Peter could escape from prison because it means that we rightly understand the power of God. But there's also something concerning about that. And what's concerning is that we've become so familiar that we've lost sight of how amazing God's power is. We've lost our wonder. Now hear me. I'm glad no one responded to the passage today with such surprise that they blurted out an expletive. That would have been awkward. But I don't want us to lose our wonder. And so again, my goal this morning is simple. I want us to simply remember this. We serve a great God who can do mighty things. And because that's true, we should live differently. And that brings us now to the response part of the passage. Let's be honest here. Most of us are probably not going to find ourselves in Peter's situation anytime soon. The odds of any of us being chained to two soldiers while we await our execution seems remote. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it doesn't seem like it'll be likely anytime soon. But while that may be true, this passage is not irrelevant for us. I think there's application for us in this passage, and the application is centered around the theme the theme being that we serve a big God who can do great and mighty things. And in light of that, let me just suggest a few ways I think we can respond, even though we may not find ourselves in the exact same situation. First, and the most obvious I think is this, in light of who God is, we should pray. Now to be crystal clear, Peter's escape from prison is due solely to the work of God. As we pointed out in this passage, Luke is going out of his way here in Acts 12 to make us see that this is God's work But having said that, don't miss the prayer references in this passage, because the prayers of the people and the activity of God are not disconnected. Let's go back again to verse five. Verse five, remember, right before all this happens in verses six, where there's this miraculous escape, notice what happens right before that, verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So in verses one to four, you have James the apostle dying by the sword. You have Herod reigning and ruling as he sees fit. You have Peter in prison awaiting execution, but in verse 5 we're told that earnest prayer was being made for Peter by the church. Now the tense of the verb in the Greek would suggest it was ongoing prayer. But in the face of such opposition from Herod, ongoing prayer probably doesn't seem like much of a weapon to us. But the only reason why it doesn't seem like much of a weapon to us is I would argue because we tend to severely, and I mean severely underestimate the power of prayer. In the American church, the prayer meeting is the least attended meeting of the church. In the American church, we are quicker to give lip service to prayer than we are to actually pray. But it's pretty obvious that was not the case for the first century church. Look again at verse 12. I remember, Peter escapes. What does he do? He goes to find the church. Where does he find them? Verse 12 clues us in. When he realized this, he being Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, given the timing of Peter's escape, it would seem most likely that this is probably the middle of the night when Peter comes knocking at the door. And what was the church doing? They were praying. Now, even if it was the middle of the day, the fact that they were gathered to pray would still be instructive. And it would still remind us prayer is the lifeline of the church. It's the engine that makes the church go. It's one of the greatest weapons we have in a world that is broken and messed up. And the reason why it's one of our greatest weapons is because of who we are praying to. And let's make sure that we make that connection here. Prayer is powerful only because of who we are praying to. Prayer is powerful because our God is powerful. It's because we're praying to a big God who can do the impossible that prayer makes any sense. And in light of that, I I have to wonder this is one of the reasons why we struggle to pray in the American church because our view of God is just too small. This week, someone sent me a video of a pastor, a friend of theirs in the Ukraine. In the video, the pastor gave a report talking about what they're doing in light of the war that's going on around them. He talked about how they'd gathered last Sunday to worship just like they always do. And then he went on to talk about how they, as the church, had been gathering nightly for prayer. Yesterday, Steve mentioned that one of his pastor friends in Ukraine, they've been praying twice daily as a church. They've been gathering twice a day to pray. And as I've heard these stories, it's made me wonder, is that what we would do if war came to our backyard? I mean, let's be honest here. As American Christians, we have a tendency to be self-reliant. I know I do. I know my first instinct in times of trouble is to think my way out of the situation or talk my way out of the problem. And if war were to come our way, I suspect many of us would be more concerned about gathering our ammunition supplies or finding a good hiding spot than we would be with spending time on our knees. And I think the fact that that would be our priority probably communicates something to us about where we think power actually resides. We tend to think power resides in our strength or our ingenuity, not in prayer. Think about this passage again. On the surface, It seems that in the first five verses, Herod has all of the power and the church has none. But by the end of the passage, it's clear that the opposite was true. The church knew where true power was located and they directed their attention to him in prayer. Now to be fair, even they seem surprised by God's power. When Peter shows up on their doorstep, they don't respond by saying, we knew this would happen. No, instead they respond in disbelief. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. It's his angel. But be that as it may, they did understand where power comes from. Now, they didn't understand how powerful God was, maybe. And maybe they were surprised even by how much God could do. But they understood if anything was going to happen, they were going to need to pray. The question I have for us is simply this. Will we have the same mindset? Will we devote ourselves to praying? Understanding that prayer is powerful precisely because of who we're praying to. Our God is powerful. That's why prayer matters. Now, having said that, sometimes God doesn't answer prayers the way we would want. We have to be honest. And that brings us to a very mysterious part of the passage and to the second way I think we should respond to Acts 12. And that's this, that we should trust God no matter the circumstances. So how do we respond? We pray and then we trust God no matter the circumstances. Now, as I said, there is a bit of a mystery of God's providence in this passage, is there not? God miraculously delivers Peter from prison. James, on the other hand, dies by the sword. We have to imagine that the church was praying earnestly for James too. And so the question I have is, why is it that James dies and Peter's rescued? Truth is, we don't know, do we? It's a mystery of God's providence. Now, as evidenced by Peter's escape, God could have set James free. But he didn't, and we don't know why. And acknowledging that, we just have to be honest here. Sometimes God's providence is a mystery. This week, someone pointed me to a Facebook page that was simply entitled Brooklyn's Journey Home. It was a Facebook page of a young woman, probably in her 20s, living out her final days on hospice care. She was dying from a variety of different ailments. And as she was dying, she was reflecting on the hope that she had in Christ and the reality of the eternity that awaited her. And as I read a reflection, I found myself just tearing up multiple times, even though I didn't know her at all, because her trust in Christ in the face of certain death was inspiring. And then a few days ago, she passed away. I don't know why that happened. I don't know why God chooses to heal some and not others. But here's what I do know. As evidenced by Jesus, death on the cross for our sins, I know God is good. I know he cares. As evidenced by his resurrection from the dead and incidents like the one we read about here in Acts 12, I know he has the power to do something. So if he's good, and if he's wise, and if he's powerful, if he chooses not to intervene, it must be because he has good reason. And so all we can do is trust. We look to his character as demonstrated on the cross. We look to his power as demonstrated at the empty tomb. We look to his wisdom as demonstrated across history, and we trust. We trust that his character is good and that even if he may not answer our prayers the way we would want, that he is still good. And so we pray and we trust. Sometimes we pray and Peter's set free from prison. Sometimes we pray and James still dies. But either way, we know that because God is good and he's a God who can do great and mighty things, we can trust him. And so we entrust ourselves to him even in the midst of life's difficulties. But lastly, in light of what we read here in Acts 12, I think there's a third way we respond, and that's this. We should respond by living boldly. It's easy to live in fear, even as a Christian, isn't it? We wonder, well, what if this person doesn't like me if I talk about Jesus? Or what if the other kids will make fun of me at school because I'm trying to live for Christ? Or or what if I lose my money because I stick my neck out for Christ? Or as a parent, we might even think, what if I live out my Christian convictions with my kids to the point that they don't get to do things that other kids are doing? And on and on it goes. We live in fear hear this if God can rescue Peter from prison and if God can rescue Daniel from the lion's den and if God can raise Jesus from the dead let's stop living in fear instead let's live boldly and courageously let's take more chances for Christ let's be more generous with our money let's be more aggressive in trying to figure out ways to get the gospel to the nations. let's live in light of the God we serve we serve a big God who can do great and mighty things let's not cower in fear Instead, because of who God is, let's live boldly and courageously. So church, this morning, I just want to remind you of the simple words from that children's song. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. And because that's true, let's pray continually and confidently. Let's trust God even in the hardships, and let's live boldly for the glory of our great and powerful God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder here in this passage that you are a great and mighty God. And we pray that we would live in light of that reality, that we would be a people who pray. Oh Lord, I confess my own prayerlessness and that oftentimes I struggle to pray. I pray that I would remember who you are and that I would respond by being a prayerful person. I pray that would be true for our church too. I pray that we would trust you, even in the midst of life's difficulties. Sometimes your providence is mysterious and we have to rest in your character. But Lord, I pray that we would also live boldly and courageously, knowing that you are a big God and we do not have to be afraid. Lord, help us to live in light of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.